Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I have a thought to share that came from all the hoopla over the crowning of King Charles III in London this past weekend. Maybe the next Uber elite bloodline-only airline elite status class will be called coronation class. You not only have to be invited to it based on spending, but also based on your bloodline or just who you are. And maybe the perk is you get to wear a jeweled crown so every employee knows who is king or queen. What do you think about that, Scott? I think that's brilliant, good sir. Uh, I can definitely see coronation class and and people comparing notes over uh, over their perks in coronation class. Travelers have long waited to pass down their status to their heirs, and they always want a new higher tier to shoot for. Maybe like Charles, you have to wait until you're 73 years old to be actually crowned into coronation class. That would certainly add a few new wrinkles to family dynamics, wouldn't it? It would, and I bet it would take about 72 hours before you could buy online coronation class crowns. <laughs> yeah. Try to get upgraded on your next flight. Exactly. <laughs> well, Ben, we have a coronation of our own to celebrate today. Your upcoming coronation. For listeners who haven't heard, you have been selected to receive the prestigious Joseph S. Murphy Award this summer at the annual International Air Transport Association meeting in Istanbul. The Murphy Award is given by Air Transport World magazine. It's named after the magazine's founder, and it's given to a person or organization in the industry that has contributed exemplary service to the community. It's very special and only awarded occasionally. There have been only three recipients in the past 10 years. This clearly is you, Ben. This award recognizes your leadership and contributions across the industry, your global influence and visionary approaches towards aviation, your keen strategic thinking and innovative direction. You've been a huge mentor to a generation of aviation leaders and a teacher for the next generation of aviation leaders. Many airlines have benefited from your wise counsel, just as our podcast listeners have. It's a tremendous and well-deserved award. Past winners have included the humanitarian organization Airlink, Cutter's Akbar El-Bakar, Stephen Hazy, the Flight Safety Foundation, Tony Broderick, Bob Crandall, Herb Kelleher, Norm Mineta, and Frank Borman. And now Ben Baldanza. Bravo, Ben. This is fantastic. Well-deserved honor, recognizing your tremendous career and contributions to air travel. We'll be looking forward to hearing some stories from Istanbul in June. Well, thank you so much for that, Scott. 
when Air Transport World called me and told me that they wanted to offer me this award, I first thought they were saying that, like, maybe I was a nominee for the award and sort of getting me prepared for some sort of vote and everything. And they're like, no, we're telling you we want to give you the award. And I was just amazed, and I still feel very honored and very humbled about this. And to have my name sort of in the list of people you talked about seems almost surreal. But I'm very excited about this. Should be a great event in Istanbul. As some of our listeners may know, Air Transport World gives their awards each year as part of the IATA, the International Air Transport Association's annual meeting. That meeting floats around So that's why it's in Istanbul, because it'll be part of the IATA meeting. And it should be a very exciting event. It's not just my award they'll be giving there, but they'll also be giving their awards for Airline of the Year, Airport of the Year, and many others. It's just great acknowledgement for all you've done. Well-deserved. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. And now let's get to the news. We had good news and bad news from the FAA this week. The agency announced that 169 new flight routes in the eastern U.S. are shorter and faster. They fly straight instead of zigzagging. It's part of a seven-year effort from the FAA and airlines to redraw high-altitude route maps for planes. The older, longer routes were designed for planes relying on ground-based radar and not the GPS that modern aircraft use. You might just say, well, it's about time since President Reagan authorized GPS use in airplanes in 1983, 40 years ago. Planes have had GPS for decades, and so have cars, and so are the phones we carry around. The FAA is maybe finally catching up a bit. But there's some bad news, too. The FAA is short about 3,000 air traffic controllers. That was the number this week from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. The FAA has about 11,500 controllers, but it needs 14,500 One in five controller jobs is vacant, and last year the FAA hired 1,026 controllers, but more controllers retired than planned. Travelers are already paying the price in delays and reduced capacity, which leads to higher fares. The controller shortage may be just as serious, if not more serious for travelers than the pilot shortage we've discussed a lot on this show. Yeah, I think this is really serious, Ben. I I have to confess, I secretly always wanted to be an air traffic controller. Unfortunately, I'm too old now. But I do have an air traffic control computer game I play all the time. It's basically just puzzle solving. I have been fortunate enough to sit in with controllers many times while they work traffic, and I did some controlling myself in an FAA training simulator. It's exciting, challenging, stressful, and fun. 
I thought we'd see a generation of kids who were raised on computer games who would be drawn to this work because it really is kind of a big real-life computer game. The pay is excellent. You get to play with airplanes, but you don't have to overnight at a million different Hiltons, and you spend all day giving orders to people. A lot of people would think that's darn appealing, right? It really is a great job. It seems like the FAA isn't selling it well, nor is it putting enough effort into recruitment. This is vital infrastructure for the country, and I really think we need to do more. I agree, and it's a great way to, again, expand the net and bring more people into this industry. Let's go out to less well-represented groups in the industry and talk about you can join this industry. You don't have to necessarily be a pilot or throw bags on a ramp or be a flight attendant. You can be an air traffic controller and keep all the planes moving quickly and safe. And it's a great way to do things. And you could identify kids in high school who are good at solving puzzles, who like the science and analytic approach to it. And we should think about these things together, Scott. We really should. Really should. And again, I think it goes hand in hand with technology development as well. I think one of the frustrations, one of the things that may scare people away is is all this talk about the FAA's old equipment and vacuum tubes and all that. We've gotten past vacuum tubes, uh, but still, um, you're not working with the latest and greatest. And all those people who are going into technology with, with Google and Apple and everybody else, um, boy, the FAA could sure use some help too. Okay, since we talked about the FAA coming out of the 1980s and opening more direct routes that let airplanes use the GPS technology they've had on board for years, I wanted to mention one other notable it's about time. Southwest Airlines has decided to add USB power ports to its planes and larger overhead bins. I guess welcome to the 21st century, Southwest. The ultra-low-cost carriers like Frontier and Spirit still don't bother with in-seat power. It adds weight to airplanes. But Southwest isn't really a low-fare airline anymore. It's a lot more full-service, and now you see it becoming even more full-service. Big bins are interesting, too. By offering free-check bags, Southwest didn't have as big a bin space shortage because its customers weren't bringing all their worldly possessions on board to avoid paying baggage fees. But that's changing. You see more and more Southwest flights where flight attendants have to gate check bags and take delays. Load factors are higher on Southwest, and there just isn't enough bin space on board. So bigger bins are coming, and that could eventually allow Southwest to start charging a baggage fee. Watch that one closely in the years to come. For now, Southwest says it's spending $2 billion on upgrades because, well, it really needs to upgrade its service. It'll be interesting to see if any of those issues pop up in the J.D. Power survey we're going to talk about in a few minutes with Jonathan Sutter. I'm curious to see how Southwest does in this survey and whether or not some of their problems at Christmas are reflected in this survey. 
Another interesting news note this week, Scott, Qantas named Vanessa Hudson as its new chief executive officer. She's succeeding Alan Joyce, who did a remarkable job steering Qantas through tough times and taking the airline in new directions over his 15-year tenure. Hudson has worked for Qantas for 30 years and was most recently was the carrier's chief financial officer. It's worth noting because there just aren't many women running airlines around the world and the industry needs to do more to address that. I hope Vanessa Hudson knocks the ball out of the park. Absolutely. And I would love to see more airline CEOs uh, who are women. Ben, I've been fortunate enough to get to know several smart, incredibly talented female airline executives who clearly had the chops to be CEO. Several of them are still in the business, and I hope they will one day be CEOs. But for some, they get close to the top, and for whatever reason, they don't get the top job or don't want the top job. The glass ceiling is significant in this business. I'm not sure why, except it's a bit like getting the FAA to modernize, I guess. Decades of ingrained, this is how it has to be done thinking, perhaps. It's time to change. It is hard to change when people have been doing things the same way for a long time, but the company's bold enough to make those kind of changes more often than not get an advantage for some period. I hope, Vanessa, if you're listening to this or someone at Qantas is, I hope she might want to come on the show in a few months and talk about not only being the CEO at Qantas, but why she's so well prepared for that job, given the 30 years prep she had. That's an excellent idea. Look forward to that. Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. This week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And we want to thank Duhop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Duhop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit duhop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And Ben will be in Miami Beach next week for Aviation Festival Americas 2023. And we have a special request of all of our listeners. We'll be on stage together for a live Airlines Confidential interview with Ted Christie, CEO of Spirit Airlines. We'll take questions from the audience live on May 17. 
But we also want questions from listeners who can't make it to Miami. So go to airlinesconfidential.com and use the questions slash comment form at the bottom of the page to send us your best question we should ask Ted Christie. We'll include some of those in our interview, which will be part of our podcast the following week, May 24. If you want to see us in person in Miami Beach, you can still get 50% off your registration. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com and click on the Aviation Festival Americas banner and use the code AC50 to save 50% on your registration. We're joined now by our good friend, Jonathan Sutter. Jonathan is Senior Director, Travel Industry Practice at J.D. Power. J.D. Power, as most of you know, conducts extensive surveys with consumers and produces closely watched rankings on airlines, hotels, cars, all kinds of products. Uh, So it's great to have Jonathan with us. Jonathan, as some of you know, uh, has an MBA and a law degree from my alma mater, Duke University, and together we put together a uh, a really wonderful travel summit this year at Duke. Jonathan's here to give us first word on the latest J.D. Power airline consumer rankings. So we're thrilled to have you with us, Jonathan, and looking forward to learning a lot about airline rankings and consumer attitudes. Let's start with uh, just reminding listeners about your role at J.D. Power and how the survey comes together. Absolutely. Well, uh, let me start by saying uh, how much of a privilege I feel it is to be on the show. It's my third opportunity to be on the show. I love listening to the show and, and, and really, really enjoy the insights that are provided. So thank you for that opportunity. Um, the way that uh, in my role at J.D. Power is to manage our business development relationships throughout the, um, throughout the travel vertical. Um, that includes airlines, airports, hotels, car rental companies, um, senior living companies, and a variety of other disparate other areas of focus um, in that BD role. We manage studies, and I work for somebody who manages the travel, hospitality, and retail practice overall. We manage uh, the airline study, which is being released uh, contemporaneous with the release of the show. And that study focuses on, in first class, premium economy and economy, how satisfied customers of brands and the competitors of those brands are. Um, and that's what we, we are releasing this week. Well, Jonathan, we certainly want to get to the results. But first, give us some context. Tell us what you've seen in this year's data that has maybe changed or is evolving in consumer minds in terms of what they think about when they fly. Absolutely. So we, similar to what we saw from 2021 to 2022, where we saw a meaningful decline in satisfaction, we saw a smaller decline this year um, between 2022 and 2023, but we did still see a decline. Just to set background, the 2023 study releasing in May, it's roughly, it's fielded roughly from March of 2022 through March of 2023. People who have flown over the prior 30 days uh, are providing responses. Um, so we're seeing a you know small decline year over year um, versus 2022 versus 2023. Um, one of the big things we're seeing that drives that decline is related to one of our study factors, which is called cost and fees. It's value perception. So especially in economy, which economy is economy and basic economy, um, we're seeing 
customers say that they're seeing a decline in their satisfaction with that value perception. So they're not seeing when you compare what they're paying versus what they're receiving year over year, they're seeing, you know, they're, they're, they're noting a, a, a decline in their overall satisfaction with what's being delivered compared to, to what they paid. And that's a that's a driving um, uh, driving item. In addition, um, we see fares increasing. We see limitations on abilities for airlines to increase overall supply. So that I think comes into play when you look at um, the overall results. That's interesting. I was I was going to ask if it was all just simply fare increase that was driving the decline in value, or you think there's more to it than that? Well, I mean, it, it, it stands out that, that we see this in economy class. So in economy class, we, we run the, the study analysis in three separate uh, cabins. So we have the regression modeling that is different in first, in premium economy and economy. Again, the economy is, is a combination of economy and basic economy. So ULCC carriers would have only uh, their, their, that standard product in addition to potentially, you know, like in, in a spirit of big front seat product, a, a, um, a mainline carrier would have the combination of, of basic and, and, and uh, standard economy. But it's, it's largely in, in looking at the results, it's as a preliminary, we, we, we will we'll dive deeper into the results as we, um, as we do the, the analysis for, for airlines that subscribe to the data. But at a preliminary level, and when, when we're first looking at this, it's largely based in, in I think in large part, on a perception of of the products being delivered versus that uh, that increase in in um, in fare um, and people paying more but not necessarily receiving as much for sub- related to that fare increase. Okay, so let's get to the results. Who's on top? Absolutely. So as I said, there are three cabins um, that we evaluate separately. So in the first class cabin, JetBlue has placed first. And this is among airlines with enough sample to be profiled. Um, within premium economy, uh, it's Delta. And to clarify premium economy, um, that that's the product that's, that's North America-based. So for these are residents of North America uh, as defined as uh, Canada and the United States. Um, so that's largely, for an American, that's like an MCE. Um, for Delta, that's for the most part Comfort Plus, et cetera. And then in economy, it's Southwest Airlines. Those were all the, the airlines that placed first in the um, in the rankings um, for those three cabins. And, and let's let's dig into that with with JetBlue. It, it seems that's a really curious uh, result. An airline that um, uh, is is that all mint? Is is that the uh, the driver here? Well, I mean, it certainly consumers are responding to the fact that they that they are perceiving a you know a a product that delivers at a high level. When we look at what is what are the components that consumers are responding based on, so there are eight factors. There's the aircraft, there's baggage, there's boarding, check-in, the value perception we discussed before, flight crew, in-flight services, and reservations. All eight of those, they're weighted based on how important customers of first class say um, those factors are in our study, in the study year. Put together, weighted score, Consumers for JetBlue are saying they they had a best overall experience versus the other carriers profiled um, in that same cabin class. Hmm. Ben, ben, what do you think? <laughs> well, I guess my initial reaction is based on what you said first, Jonathan, that 
overall satisfaction is down somewhat, largely driven by higher fares, then it's not really a surprise to me that carriers like JetBlue and Southwest might come up on top this year, since those are carriers, among others, that try to keep fares more reasonable when they can. And so it's just interesting the way this is coming out. I guess if everybody's paying more money, what you want to do is still pay less if you can to get that sense that I'm getting high value. Does that make sense, Jonathan? It does. We actually have seen um, satisfaction levels that are on the rise in first class. So what we talked about, you know, overall satisfaction declining. Uh, one of the things that we anticipate talking about in the marketplace and talking about our individual um, airline um, discussions is passengers in first class have had a positive experience. And we'll talk about this in, in greater detail as we go um, again and have the subsequent conversations. Uh, but, you know, we, we see things like F and B scores. We may have uh, recall, I think on the podcast we did last year, we talked about satisfaction. Um, I think some satisfaction questions being raised about reduced F and B services in first class and passengers expecting that coming out of COVID to have those services um, back. Well, we're seeing those services back. So we're seeing satisfaction increases in first class because the, the, the more robust F&B services have been uh, reintroduced or back in first class. So it is a different story in first class versus that overall um, satisfaction decline. It's also interesting in, in premium economy. I've, I've uh, flown Delta's uh, comfort seating uh, a few times recently and have been really impressed. The free drink offer and, uh, with snacks uh, is, is really kind of nice at the end of the day. And, uh, and I rather enjoyed the, the special uh, IPA brew that Delta has that's brewed for uh, high altitude uh, consumption. So I, I, I totally agree with that, that results, um, having uh, flown them all recently. And premium economy is a different cabin as part of our analysis. One of the things we talked about last year um, when we had the show uh, covering the 2022 results was the, port- the importance of personalization. I think the you know we haven't we looked at this pre-COVID you know in terms of an analysis um, specifically, but personalization is I think repeatedly something that um, JD Power would opine is is important part of the experience. We've seen some carriers go in on like technology, and we talked about this last year, um, to ensure that personalization is part of the product that's being delivered. We see one carrier that's weighed in publicly about uh, introducing or continuing a personalized greeting as part of when the person gets on the plane, and then in premium economy, ensuring that, that you know, frequent flyers that are elite level that are likely in that in that portion of the airplane are are engaged pretty frequently with the flight staff and are recognized for their loyalty. So those are the kinds of things that the data can allow us um, to to weigh in on and, and engage our uh, the brands that are profiled about, about that impact. Before we move away from results, let's talk about airlines that didn't do as well this year. Absolutely. So um, we have seen across the board in in economy class we've seen some airlines that have not 
performed, I guess, at the top of the segment. I don't know that any of the individual carriers that are profiled are going to be necessarily surprised with their performance. I think there's opportunities for a carrier to say we've been successful and opportunities for a carrier to say we need, you know, we, do, we need to focus on areas of improvement across the study. But we looked at the fact that costs and fees and value perception is a big, usually it's, it's one of the highest, if not the highest uh, factor in our economy-based um, regression modeling. Just having the lowest fare is not enough. You must deliver on value. You must show value for um, that price point. And so that that's I think that's one one area to focus on. I mean, you know, as somebody who has worked in the ULCC space, I've worked with incredibly um, incredibly insightful and innovative colleagues in that space, and there are a lot of really market leading practices being implemented, but there's also an important conversation about value perception and ensuring that the value as perceived by customers, you know, is, is, is something that's, that's at the front, at the forefront of, of the innovation for, for, for that, for that set of carriers. So are we naming names? No, I mean, I think I, I don't want to call out individual carriers because I think across the board, this is, this is not about an individual carrier. This is, I think about market wide, um, perceptions. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about the results. I mean, I could, I could list them you know, carrier by carrier, and maybe that's easier done when, when, this, when this goes live, if somebody pulls up the press release, which will be live when this goes out to see the carriers across the board. Um, we see at, at the, towards the bottom of the list of, of carriers in the economy segment, as an example, um, carriers that have exceptionally competitive price points, but also for a variety of reasons, customers are weighing in that they are not overall as satisfied with those carriers. Again, I know from firsthand experience with many of those carriers, they have incredibly insightful and innovative executives at the helm. And the opportunity is there to work with us or others to figure out why um, consumers of those brands are saying that the that the the value is not there, and work on those areas. And you know, we would say, you know, there's a real opportunity to um, to rise in the in the rankings if you if those carriers look at those those areas. Well, Jonathan, let's try to peel the onion one more level on these results in this way: Are the winners this year pulling away from their competitors, or? Are the number twos as close as they've ever been? Well, we, I mean, in a premium economy example, it's only, it's, it's, it's less than 10 points um, between the um, first ranked carrier and the, and the carrier placing in second place. Um, we have seen leads decline at that, that, that the, the size of the lead decline in one case um, in economy class um, that, that's, that, that stands out. And you know it's probably not surprising for Southwest. Southwest had challenges over the twelve-month period that we were fielding. That should come as no surprise to listeners, to the, those that have, have watched the industry and watched performance. Yet, notwithstanding those challenges, they they have you know they perform. This is a study that fields over twelve months, and it's not made up over responses over a one or two-week period. It's responses over the four quarters or the twelve months of the year. So there, you know, in, in economy class, we do see we do see a situation where um, it's not a huge lead over between Southwest and and Delta, which is uh, Delta and JetBlue are pretty closely are close second and third um, behind Southwest. 
Uh, it's not it's not an enormous lead, and you know challenges of Southwest are you know are were in the news, and you know we, we've that that's something that you know that that's pretty well known in in you know, but it's fielded over twelve months, and so performance is based on twelve months of performance. So beyond the results, um, we, we've talked some about uh, consumer perceptions of value. Um, but are there are there other things that you're learning about changing consumer views? Well, we talked about in-flight services. So um, before, I think I think it remains that that a consumer has expectations associated with what they're paying, and part of that is again what the product they receive in the cabin. Um, and you know, the, the, I think it remains that a consumer, especially like in a first-class cabin, wants. A set of services that's commensurate, or you know, that that, that is associated with that that price point, um, and so if it's not delivered, consumers will continue to say, "We want to see this. We we need to see this." And in order for us to to um, be fully satisfied, we need to make sure that um, you know that that those services are provided. You know, I, I think as well again, price price conscious passengers. Um, you know, again on that ULCC front, if the pro the overall product is not perceived as delivering um, the value that those consumers think is is required based on that higher price point, they will um, rank accordingly. They will provide feedback um, accordingly. F and B overall is just to mention before that overall um, across all segments, I believe it's up about 12 points. And this is maybe not a final number, but around 12 points. So I think there is, um, I think we're seeing improvement across all segments in F and B. Food and beverage is what we're talking about there. Yes, F and B. Food and beverage. Not fares and baggage. Not no food and beverage. <laughs> no, no. Food and beverage. Well, before we move on, Airlines Confidential wants to just give huge congratulations to JetBlue, Delta, and Southwest for their wins this year in this very important consumer category. But Jonathan, while you're here. Tell us what the pipeline is this year on future travel awards coming from J.D. Power. Absolutely. So as we continue through the year, I mentioned a couple other areas of focus um, and a couple other studies uh, that we have within our syndicated portfolio. So later on in the year, um, towards the middle of the year, we will have a hotel study that profiles hotels in a variety of, uh, of categories, all the way from luxury um, to economy. Uh, we will have uh, a little bit later in the year an airport study. I was on the podcast last year to talk about the airport study results um, that will focus on mega, large, and medium-sized airports based on total passenger volumes at those airports. That's how we categorize those airports. We also have a rental car study that publishes later in the year that profiles um, satisfaction for customers of, of rental car companies. Um, there are other studies as well, senior living and and, and beyond, um, but wanted to mention those three specifically that may be of particular interest to the audience of the show. And Jonathan, you mentioned before working with individual airlines um, on the data. I, I'm, I'm curious how all this works. Um, how what If companies want to improve their rankings, what services can J.D. Power offer? How does it work with the companies who are in the study. And I would even go beyond just the airlines in the study, you know, any stakeholder that may that may want to understand improvement. I, I'd look at three different areas. So for st- an airline that is profiled, 
um, doesn't it doesn't have to subscribe to our data to be profiled. Where, where it's independent of the airlines, we rerun the study. If those airlines want to engage with our data, they can subscribe to the data. So number one, what I would say is the, the, the study questionnaire has a number of questions that go into the regression modeling to figure out how important the eight factors I mentioned are to the, that airline's customers and their competitors' customers. Figure out weights, come up with scores based on that um, weighted index model methodology. But in addition to that, we have other questions that help airlines understand, what do I do about those results? Going forward, what can I do based on the study results to improve? So in a question that we might designate as a what's called a KPI um, allows that airline to say, the impact of doing X is 100 points out of 1,000 points. And I do this 50% of the time, but my competitor does this 75% of the time. So that airline can say, okay, based on that, I need to go do more of that. So that's one example of something an airline can do based on the study data. I mean, I think a second area, uh, we have feedback platforms in airports right now. They're they're deployed in five different airports. It's called Passenger View. Uh, that is data that's different than the the syndicated studies we, we, we noted before. When passengers log on to Wi-Fi at those airports, airports and stakeholders that may engage with that Passenger View platform can obtain nearly instantaneous feedback about what thousands of passengers a day potentially are are noting in the airport. So as an example, mega airport, that's a categorization, we have 3,000 people on average a day providing feedback and it available to that airport by the end of the day for the most part. So airlines could potentially use that kind of data or other stakeholders could use that kind of data to find out nearly instantaneously how to improve performance based on what airport passengers across all terminals, across all airlines in, that, in those airports, what passengers are saying. Um, in addition, and this is something I talked about last year, we work in a large number of industries. So today we're focusing on travel, but we work in auto, we work in insurance, we work in financial services, all these different industries. And we like to say that a, a customer's expectations, what good looks like, is based on your customer's expectations as set across industries. It's not solely based on their travel industry experiences because they're working and engaging with brands across industries. So we we bring to bear what good customer service looks like from across industries, those benchmarks, and we can provide that expertise to airlines or other stakeholders involved in aviation based on those benchmarks across industries so that an airline can say, okay, compared to retail, insurance, all these different industries in voice, in chat, in social, in digital, all these different mechanisms for engagement, how do I perform not only as a leader in my industry, but as a leader across industries? And how do I best leverage um, what, what good looks like, again, across those industries. That's a third area where I, I, we can bring those insights to bear. And we, we're engaging with stakeholders in travel on this. We just did it. We just were publishing or recently published a case study with a large hospitality-focused brand um, based on their experience working with us in that regard. All very interesting. Jonathan, thanks so much for, for the quick early look at uh, who's on top in the latest J.D. Power survey. And we look forward to uh, learning a whole lot more about it. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be on the show. As I said, I, I really value this. And thank you for everything you're doing for the industry and, and, and facilitating the show. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And we'll be back with more Airlines Confidential. 
promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Jonathan for bringing us a first look at the latest J.D. Power rankings. In this week's mailbag is a comment from David in Seattle, who felt we were too kind to Tom Doxey, the president of Breeze Airlines, who we interviewed last week. David says, love the show, but I feel like you gave Tom several outs. One, primarily A220. A check of Sirium shows they're still at a roughly 50-50 split of passengers' flights scheduled on the A220 versus the E190 and E195. Their operation is still very complex, despite his assertions. Two, Avello versus Breeze. He really gave a non-answer here. Would have loved for you to push harder. It's really core to their strategy. It does appear it's a race to the small city first. And for that matter, Breeze doesn't fly many overlap routes with any carriers. What's the argument for having a differentiated and strong product? With no competition, it's margin dilution. I know you guys have to weigh playing nice versus holding people accountable, and you want to be able to get the guess. But some light pushback would be appreciated at times. In some instances, it may not be pushback, but more of a clarification. For example, Tom may have been talking about fleet goals by a future date. Thanks for listening, David. Ben, I take David's comments to heart. As I get used to the podcast format, I probably have been too hesitant to jump in with follow-ups and clarifications, and I appreciate the push from David. On one of his specifics, I'll just say that personally, I think there is a need for a differentiated and strong product when you are a new business in a crowded marketplace. Even though they're flying routes without direct competition, they are trying to win over customers who fly other airlines all the time. You can build the brand with a strong product that attracts attention, and that attention and word of mouth is going to be key, especially in smaller communities. I think that's right, Scott. And David, I too appreciate your comments on this and your push to maybe push some of our guests more. I will say in Tom's defense, though, that one of the reasons their operation is more complex today is there just aren't enough 220s being made for all the demand for that airplane. And what Breeze has done is they started their airline with the readily available E-190, 195, while bringing in the 220 at the rate they could bring it in. And I'm sure David Nealman and Tom and everyone at Breeze imagines themselves at a future date with only the 220, but they'd be a much smaller airline today if that's all they could be. So in some ways, that complexity isn't part of their business model, but it's a reality of building up the model. Very good. And Ben, here's a question from another David. Apparently, we only got questions from Davids this week. This time, David is from Twin Falls, Idaho. David says, I'm a fervent listener of the show and finally think I have a good question to ask you guys. I am from Middle Tennessee and work out of Chicago and live in Twin Falls. I spend an above average amount of time on the airlines. 
Our local airport here in Twin has a very unique arrangement with SkyWest. The city and the airport are subsidizing service, a single daily round trip to Salt Lake City, at a cost of about $60,000 a month. To me, this is a terrible waste of local tax receipts. The schedule and service are terrible. Because there are no turboprops anymore, they use a CRJ200, which has too many seats for this market. Therefore, frequency is too low, one flight per day. Also, the timing is poor for passengers. We only get the service when SkyWest has no other use for the aircraft and crew. It's basically a free parking spot for an aircraft because it arrives to Twin late at night and returns to Salt Lake City early in the morning. I never use it because it always requires a long layover in Salt Lake City that totally offsets my drive time to Boise to get nonstop service to Chicago or California or wherever else I need to go. First question, would you guys please provide me some context for this arrangement? I've heard you guys speak about essential air service contracts before. I still don't completely understand this corner of the industry, but clearly this is a city-county subsidy, not a federal subsidy. Is this normal? Second question, which of your former guests would you think could perhaps provide better service in this kind of market? Landline, JSX, or perhaps Allegiant or some other carrier? David's got a lot of stuff in those questions, Ben. What do you think about locally subsidized air service, and are there alternatives for that kind of market? I think this is a great question. I'm also really intrigued, David, about the fact that you're from Middle Tennessee, work in Chicago, and live in Twin Falls. I think that's more like the way we're seeing work relationships happening in the U.S., In general, I think subsidies can be a great way to get service going, but are never a long-term strategy for service. If a route doesn't make money based on the demand for travel between the two cities on its own, I don't think that long-term subsidy is a reason to keep it there. Again, maybe free landing fees for a year, or maybe something to sort of help build the market. But eventually, it's got to build to be sustainable on its own. And I agree with you, a single CRJ a day between Twin Falls and Salt Lake City is not a realistic option for most travelers. Maybe it does connect with one of the Delta banks at Salt Lake, and so works. But man, if that plane is canceled, everybody's going to lose their connections. I did a quick look on Google Maps. It's a three-hour drive from Twin Falls to Salt Lake. That seems to me like a perfect option for landline. It could be a real nice bus service, and I bet they could drive five or six buses a day for less than the city pays for its single RJ and would see how that maybe built the market. JSX may also be an opportunity. The challenge is, is it connected to anything else they do? Just to put a plane between Twin Falls and Salt Lake 
going back and forth might not be that efficient unless it connected to something else they were doing. Allegiant, I'm sure, has looked at Twin Falls. They would likely want to serve Vegas or one of their other big points from that. It's not likely to me that they would fly Twin Falls to Salt Lake. The other one you didn't mention is whether or not Frontier could potentially provide service to Denver. Now, Frontier has planes that are much bigger than the CRJ, so you might think, well, if the CRJ is too big, a Frontier A320 is going to be way too big. But again, at different price points, different planes can work. So I think you brought up a great issue that subsidy is not a good long-term strategy and that there are business models better than a one-time-a-day locally subsidized flight that might make these connections work better. What do you think, Scott? Uh, well, I, I totally agree. Subsidies are a, a fascinating thing. Uh, uh, David mentioned essential air service. That's the, the federal subsidy, and that's only available to cities and towns that had air service when the industry was deregulated in 1978. It, it makes no sense today. The world has completely changed. The, the Lancasters, Lancaster, Pennsylvanias of the world don't necessarily need that subsidy. Lots of places that might need that subsidy can't get them because they didn't have air service in 1978. It's a a really ridiculous system that Congress should fix. The local subsidies, I I totally agree on uh, incentives to get service started, but it can't be, just can't go on forever. It can't be maintained. The problem is Every city in town is afraid that if they lose air service, they're going to be taken off the economic map. If you don't have air service, you're not going to get companies relocating there. You're not going to get as many uh, people coming in to buy houses or whatever it might be. And you don't want to be the mayor who lost air service, right? So they keep paying. Um, and it's uh, it's just kind of throwing money away um, just for the the pride of saying we have air service. Um, and as David pointed out, you really don't have air service. It's just not uh, it's not good for anybody. Um, so I, I agree. I th- and I think, as you've said, uh, you know, buses or other alternatives, um, that's really going to be the future for rural air service that we're in within a couple miles of airports because the the problem those towns face, among other things, is when people need to travel, they're getting in their own car and driving to the airport because they want a decent fare or, or good schedule or, or whatever. It's, uh, it, it is a tough problem for small communities, um, but just not solved by throwing money at it. Very good thought, Scott. Thanks again for listening to Airlines Confidential. Please send us your questions and comments, particularly the questions you want us to ask Ted Christie on stage next week. We'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.